hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. A testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith came to me through the pages of the Book of Mormon. It was by virtue of the Book of Mormon that I was rooted and grounded. I joined the church when I was a freshman in college at Idaho State University in Pocatello, Pocatello, Idaho. And from the time I joined the church, I was encouraged to read the Book of Mormon, and I did. And through the Book of Mormon came everything, a knowledge, understanding, a witness, and an enduring faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a knowledge and understanding that the gospel had been restored and Joseph Smith was a prophet. That's really about all I knew. I was dumber than a post when it came to religion. But through the Book of Mormon, and then from there, through the prophet Joseph Smith, I was led to understand everything else that has come to me since then. And for some strange reason, I've never doubted, nor questioned, nor wondered if the Book of Mormon was true, and if Joseph was really a prophet. Joseph led me to the Savior. I want to talk about someone else much better, much stronger. See, the power of Joseph Smith was not his power. It was the Lord's power. Whatever anyone else does when they study the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it isn't enough to just look at Joseph as a man, a person, and a prophet. Look at those who followed him. And to dismiss Joseph, as I've said before, to dismiss Joseph is to dismiss all those who affirmed he was a prophet, who gave their lives following him, believing that he would lead them to the Savior and a heavenly home. Among them, Brigham Young. Brigham Young would describe that his parents were some of the most strict religionists upon the earth. To violate the family's religious standards, I'm quoting, would bring forth swift paternal discipline. He would often say that my father's mode of discipline was the whip before the word. His mother was of a more gentle approach and revered by her children. She encouraged her children to do everything that is good, do nothing that is evil, and if you see any persons in distress, administer to their wants. But then, when Brigham Young was 16 years old, his beloved mother, Nabby Young, succumbed to tuberculosis and passed away. The family was broken up and scattered. And at the age of 16, Brigham Young, the ninth child, left home to make his way in the world. It was right about this same time that Brigham's brother, Lorenzo, experienced a most remarkable dream. In that dream, he saw a beautiful golden carriage being drawn by a pair of white horses. In that carriage was the Savior, 
And as the Savior approached, he said, Where is your brother Brigham? After answering his question about Brigham, he inquired about my other brothers and concerning my father. He stated, this is quoting Lorenzo, he stated that he wanted us all, but especially my brother Brigham. Brigham matured from the age of 16 onward and became a skilled and conscientious craftsman. When he was 23 years old, he married Miriam Works, who was described, quote, as a beautiful blonde with blue eyes and wavy hair, gentle and lovable. Together, Brigham and Miriam had two children, Elizabeth and Valate. Now, this is the part I want you to hear. Brigham Young was fiercely independent. How independent? Well, Brigham was not a drinker. He was not a drunk. Even though he never drank, when his family urged him to sign a temperance pledge, Brigham refused to do it, saying, quote, I wish to do just right without being bound to do it. I want my liberty. My independence is sacred to me. That independent spirit of Brigham Young carried into religion. Somehow he developed his own ideas of God and of salvation and of the scriptures. Amidst the fervor of the Second Great Awakening of revivalism, Brigham remained skeptical of the churches. They were empty. Their doctrines and teachings were vain. He wanted to know God and how to find him, but he couldn't find anyone that could answer his tough questions. Angry ministers called him an infidel. Brigham would later say, so desperately did I want to know. To find a man who could tell me with authority about God, he said, I would have crawled across a continent on my hands and knees to find such a man. Well, as I've already told you, September 22, 1827, Brigham was there in the small town of Minden, New York, along with others of his family in Heber C. Kimball, and saw the great vision of the battle in the heavens and the warriors in the sky. He took it as a sign from God, though he did not understand it. He would remember that all of his days. And yet, no answers. Brigham became discouraged, his questions unfulfilled. Then the Book of Mormon, through the instrumentality of Samuel Smith and others, the Book of Mormon came into Brigham's life. His father, brother, sisters, relatives, all embraced the Book of Mormon very quickly, but Brigham was leery, not about to be taken in. For 18 months, he pondered the book, compared its teachings to the Bible, and scrutinized those who believed in it. It was not enough to feel or believe it was true. Brigham had to know. Then came the day when Eliezer Miller bore humble testimony to the truth of the Restoration, and Brigham's soul was filled with light and certainty. He was baptized April 14, 1832. Miriam would be baptized three weeks later. Brigham would recall of those days, I was reborn. 
I wanted to thunder and roar out the gospel to the nations. It burned in my bones like fire pent up and preached the gospel he did. He would go out and teach, but he could never go very far from home. Why? Because his beloved wife, Miriam, had contracted tuberculosis and was slowly slipping away. This touches my soul. Each day, Brigham got up, fixed breakfast for his wife, himself, his little girls, dressed the children, cleaned the house, carried his wife to the rocking chair by the fireplace and left her there until he could return in the evening. After work, he would come home. He would cook his own and the family's supper, put his wife back to bed, and finish up the day's domestic labors. End of quote. In September 1832, Miriam Young passed away. She and Brigham both confident they would be together again someday in eternity. With his wife gone, his daughters under the motherly watch care of Volate Kimball, Brigham Young closed up his shop, gave away his earthly possessions, and set out to find the prophet Joseph Smith and preach that gospel that seemed like a fire in his bones. And oh, he did. Brigham had a unique way. He was a man on fire. I remember reading that Brigham's objective was, I wish I had the voice of seven thunders, he would say. I want my preaching to be like as though it was raining pitchforks, tines down. I want the people to move. A friend of mine who has since passed away and a wonderful scholar of Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, Ron Walker, would once refer to Brigham Young as one of the twin pillars of the Restoration. Joseph Smith I, Brigham Young II. And if you know anything about Brigham, he was not weak, he was not a dupe, he was no one's fool. And yet he followed the prophet Joseph Smith from Kirtland to Joseph's death in Carthage, and then acting upon the charge given to him by the prophet Joseph Smith, Brigham would live out the rest of his days fulfilling the admonitions given to him by Joseph. And according to witnesses, when he died in August of 1877, his last words were, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Now, whether it's Eliza R. Snow, or Brigham Young, or Edward Partridge, or Amos Lyman, or so many others who gave up everything and followed the prophet Joseph Smith. Why did they follow Joseph? Because it was Joseph? No. Joseph was just a man. It's because they found the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of salvation through the keys that Joseph held. That was the secret to Joseph's great success. Another story. This is Zion's camp. We wrote a book about Zion's camp right here, which you can find at historyofthesaints.org, but this story is found in this book. 
It was Saturday, May 17, 1834, when the members of Zion's camp were camped near Richmond, Indiana, and that in order to avoid having to travel on the Sabbath. While they were camped there, one of the members of the expedition, there were about 200 men in that expedition, one of the members of the expedition became a little bit grumpy, as it were, and displayed a fractious spirit. His name was Sylvester Smith, no relation to the prophet. He was also a member of the Kirtland High Council. He became angry, and he insulted one of the other members of the party, and even publicly, right in front of the prophet, defied his authority. Well, displeased with the disunity of Sylvester and other members of the camp who joined with him, Joseph called the camp together and, according to Heber C. Kimball's recollection, said, quote, that they, meaning the members of Zion's camp, they would meet with misfortunes, difficulties, and hindrances, and you will know it before you leave this place. End of quote. Now, Heber recorded and caught that prophecy, and he recorded the aftermath. On the following morning when we arose, we found almost every horse in camp so badly foundered we could scarcely lead them a few rods to the water. When Joseph learned the fact, he explained that it was for a witness that God overruled and had his eye upon them. He then said that all those who would humble themselves before the Lord should know that the hand of God was in this misfortune, and their horses should be restored to health immediately. The brethren humbled themselves and obeyed the prophet. And Heber states that by noon that day, I'm quoting, the horses were as nimble as ever with the exception of one, which died shortly thereafter. That horse belonged to Sylvester Smith. I want to tell you about one dear lady. This is kind of a long story, but in order to appreciate it, you have to really hear the whole story. It's kind of a life story for Lydia Goldthwaite. She was born in 1812 in Massachusetts, had a happy childhood, was her father's favorite, and lived in a happy family. When she was 16 years old, a handsome, charming fellow came into the community and set his sights on her. All the girls wanted him, but somehow he wanted her. So they got married. Her marriage soon turned into the story of man's cruelty and woman's suffering. In 1829, Lydia gave birth to a little girl who proved to be a great blessing of comfort to that youthful mother. Two years later, her husband abandoned her. Her second child, a little boy, was born, died a short time later, and then one year later, right around after her husband abandoned her, her little girl died. Lydia was 18 or 19 years old. She'd been abandoned by her husband and lost her two children. She was depressed, inconsolable, and grief-stricken. A friend came down from Canada named Freeman Nickerson 
and knew the family and saw the plight that Lydia was in and suggested to her parents that maybe a change of scenery would do her good. Could he take her home, back up there, and try to nurse her back to emotional health? Well, Lydia went. And I've told this story before. It was while Lydia was staying with Eliezer Freeman and Eliezer Nickerson and the others up in Canada that their dad, Freeman Nickerson, the senior, came to visit, bringing with him Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. And Lydia, the tender, innocent, grief-stricken girl, was in the meeting that first night and heard Joseph teach. And she recorded, quote, his face became white and a shining glow seemed to beam from every feature. That experience and others, Lydia was converted and with trembling joy, she was baptized. Shortly before Joseph and Sidney were to leave to come back down to Kirtland, he was seen pacing the floor. He paced back and forth, deep in thought, and finally he spoke. I have been pondering on Sister Lydia's lonely condition and wondering why it is that she has passed through so much sorrow and affliction and is thus separated from all her relatives. I now understand it. The Lord has suffered it even as he allowed Joseph of old to be afflicted, who was sold by his brethren as a slave into a far country, and through that became a savior to his father's house and country. Even so shall it be with her. Now listen to this. The hand of the Lord will overrule all her pain and suffering for good to her and her father's family. End of quote. And then turning to Lydia, Joseph continued, Sister Lydia, great are your blessings. The Lord your Savior loves you and will overrule all your past sorrows and afflictions for good unto you. Let your heart be comforted. You are the blood of Israel descended through the loins of Ephraim. You shall yet be a Savior to your father's house. Therefore, be comforted. And let your heart rejoice, for the Lord has a great work for you to do. Be faithful and endure to the end, and all will be well. When the Lord gave that admonition through the prophet Joseph, be faithful and endure to the end, all will be well. Lydia had no idea just how tough enduring to the end was going to be. Shortly after, and this is another story for another time, she immigrated to Kirtland. And she was invited by Hiram Smith to live in his boarding house and assist the family. While there, she met a young widower by the name of Newell Knight. Newell asked her if that they, in their loneliness, might keep company with each other. And suffice it to say, Lydia was insulted and indignant. And she rebuked him. And then... Newell found out that even though her husband had ran off and left her, Lydia still considered herself to be a married woman. It had been three years. Still considered herself a married woman and would not dishonor the commandments of God. 
Well, Newell was distressed. So he went and told Hiram. Hiram went and told Joseph. Joseph told Hiram, you go back and tell her to marry Newell, and it will be well with both of them. Hiram told Newell, and Newell went straight to Lydia and told her. It is said that filled with joy at that news, Lydia threw herself upon her knees and poured out her soul in thanks to God. They were married November 23rd, 1835. It was the first marriage the prophet Joseph Smith had ever performed. They lived together in love and harmony and union and joy throughout the Kirtland period, then Missouri, and finally into Nauvoo. And all the while, Newell was of great service to the kingdom, as was Lydia. Then Joseph and Hiram were martyred, and Newell, January 1st, 1847, Newell wrote the following in his journal. Now, by this time, January 1st, 1847, Newell and the rest of the saints had left Nauvoo. They'd crossed Iowa. Newell and Lydia and their family were clear into Nebraska territory, spending the winter at a place called Fort Ponca in preparation to go west the following spring. It was Christmas Day, 1846, on the high prairie of Nebraska, when a fire swept down on their small settlement and threatened to burn their haystacks, their wagons, their cabins, all of their food. The men and the brethren turned out, and under Newell's direction, they fought the fire to ground until late that night. The cold, cold temperatures and the heat of the fire took a terrible toll, and Newell came down with pneumonia, became very ill. January 1st, 1847, Newell wrote this in his journal. I scarcely know why I am thus anxious, why this world appears so trifling, or the things of this world. I almost desire to leave this tenement of clay, that my spirit may soar aloft and no longer be held in bondage. Yet my helpless family seems to need my protection for their sakes. And if I yet have more to do on earth or can do more good to the living than to the dead, I am willing to remain yet longer in the flesh. And then he wrote, Thy will, O Lord, be done and not mine. I read that in Newell's journal, in his own handwriting. One of the most powerful and emotional experiences with a document I've ever had in my life. And when he wrote, Thy will, O Lord, be done, he capitalized it, big, bold letters, and then underlined it again and again and again. Ten days later, Newell lay on his deathbed. Lydia sat with tightly closed hands and wild, agonized eyes, watching the breath of the man she loved better than life itself, slowly ceasing. Lydia, Newell said, it is necessary for me to go. Joseph wants me. It is needful that a messenger be sent with the true condition of the saints. Don't grieve too much, for you will be protected. 
Lydia cried. Oh, Newell, don't speak so. Don't give up. I could not bear it. Think of me, Newell. Here in an Indian country alone with seven little children, no resting place for my feet, no one to counsel, to guide, to protect me. I can't let you go. And then Newell said, I will not leave you now then, Lydia. But he was in such terrible pain. Finally, Lydia could bear his suffering no longer. She knelt and prayed and asked the Lord that if it was really his will that Newell be released, let him go. The prayer was scarcely over ere a calm settled on the sufferer and with one long, loving look in his eyes into the eyes of his beloved wife, the shadow lifted and the spirit fled. They buried Newell out on the plains. It is written in the story, as the woman looked out upon the wilderness of snow and saw the men bearing away all that was left of her husband, it seemed that the flavor of life had fled and left only dregs, bitter, unavailing sorrow. But as she grew calmer, she whispered with poor, pale lips, the motto that her and Newell had lived by since they had met, quote, God rules. Eventually, Lydia made her way west. There's a lot more to her story. Eventually, Lydia made her way to Utah's Dixie. She settled in St. George. She was there in early 1877 when the St. George Temple was dedicated. And once it was dedicated, the first temple to do ordinance work for the dead, Lydia labored for the rest of her days, performing the sacred ordinances for hundreds of her kindred dead. Joseph Smith's prophecy stood fulfilled. Lydia became a savior on Mount Zion to her people and to her family. I feel to say, my dear brothers and sisters, that all those of you who have put faith in the promises delivered to us by the prophet Joseph Smith from the Lord Jesus Christ, those promises, like Lydia's, will all be fulfilled. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his prophets. And if at any time, your faith in the prophet Joseph as the Lord's prophet begins to wane, pick up the Book of Mormon. Immerse yourself in the Book of Mormon. Let the miracle of that book confirm your faith in the Savior and Joseph as his prophet. That is my witness. That's been my procedure to maintain faith what little I have through all of my days. I know that the Lord lives and is with us, and yes, these miracles still occur today. The stories that you've been sending me affirm that there are still miracles among us now. The Lord is with us. Trust in the Lord and in his promises. Endure to the end, and all will be well. 
I give you that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.